Refuge Church. Glad you could be with us. We are grateful as uh, the video was communicating how everyone this past year has served so well, um, so uh, selflessly to care for our church. So I want to say it again. Thank you so much. We're grateful for you and all that you mean to us as a family. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 and also Judges chapter 6 today. Hebrews chapter 11, just verse 32, and then Judges chapter 6. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you're there, say amen. Hear the reading of God's Word in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. And then over to Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. It says, So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. Then, or, or that night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the, with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. And so Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down. And the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Amen. This is the word of our God. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today in exclusive faith, in exclusive faith. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word that gives us life where there's death, where it gives us hope where there's despair. It gives us 
love where there's hatred. God, your word is the power to transform us. And so we pray today that you would show up by your spirit to speak into our hearts and minds to make your word effective unto our salvation. Change us by your own power. We pray that you would get all the glory out of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I wonder if anyone here has ever been to one of those create-your-own stir-fry restaurants. I don't know if you've ever been there. It, it, they have these, these restaurants where you create your own experience, your own stir-fry, and, and it's kind of strange, to be honest. It's, it's a real simple idea, but it's a strange idea because most restaurants you go to and they, they have the food already prepared for you when, when you get it. Right? But by the time you get it, you either sit down, you order it, they bring it to you, or you go up to the front if you're at McDonald's and they hand it to you prepared, whatever. But whenever you go to a restaurant, the first time you touch it, it's usually cooked. But this place is different. They have all the raw ingredients set up at the front of the restaurant. And it's set up like a buffet, but nothing's cooked. They've got raw vegetables, you know, broccoli and and uh, green beans and carrots and all kinds of mushrooms and different things, all these vegetables. Then they got a meat section where they've got chicken and pork and shrimp and all these raw meats and things. Then they've got sauces and, and, and uh, spices and things that you can add. And, and your goal is real simple. You go up and you grab a bowl and you fill the bowl. And you, you know, you pay whatever the amount is and, and people are going to get their money's worth because you pay by the bowl. So people are just dumping food as much as they can, squishing it down into the bowl, getting as much as they can. Do. I mean, people are walking around. Last time I went, it was stacked like this high. They're, they're walking, holding the pile of food to make sure they get all that they can. You carry it, try to balance it over to the cook. And he's standing next to this griddle and he dumps the whole bowl on the griddle and he stirs it around and cooks it. And then you pray. You pray that it actually tastes good. Because you mix together all these random things that you thought might be good, but I'm guessing that you're not a chef. I'm guessing that maybe what you make at home doesn't taste as good as what some expert might craft for you. And so people throw all kinds of stuff together, and I've never done it right. I've only been there maybe two times to this kind of restaurant and failed miserably. It was terrible. Tasted bland, strange mixtures of sauces and spices. I didn't know what I was doing. But it's a brilliant idea, because here's the thing. It's all your fault. It's brilliant. You put it all together, and if it doesn't turn out well, it's your fault. And they can charge you more. And you can only be angry at yourself. And they do less. Brilliant business. Brilliant business. But think about it. I mean, it's just a picture of our culture, right? This, this create-your-own-experience culture that we have in America. This create-your-own-culture, create-your-own-experience culture where it's not uh, just our restaurants where we like to have you know, lots of options and the ability of flexibility to do things the way we want to do it. But it's all over. It's in our relationships. It's in our politics. It's in our marriages. It's in our workplace. We like this create your own experience, right? We'll grab a little bit of this, a little bit of that, mix it together, see if it works, see if we like it. Because we're, I mean, at heart, Americans, we, we are pragmatists and we are pleasure seekers. We are all about what works and what feels good. 
That, that's kind of our, our down to the core, what we're about. And so we'll, you know, we'll watch a little YouTube video on, on relationships and get a little advice from somebody. Or we'll, we'll go on Instagram and, and follow somebody who, now that we've seen their videos, we're, we're kind of an expert in this topic now. Or, you know, all these things. We'll just grab a little bit from here. We'll, we'll read a book on business that tells us how we can get ahead and get rich quick. And we start pursuing that at the expense of other things. All this stuff. We take a little bit here, take a little bit there, put it together, and hope it works. And then we find out it doesn't work. I mean, we know it doesn't work because we're still exhausted. We're discontent. We're bitter. We're, we're full of uh, suspicion. I mean, sometimes in the church, we, we look no different than anyone else who's trying to mix things together without Jesus. And so you have to ask the question, why is it not working? When we're grabbing all these things together, why is it not working? And this brings us to this text. We're, we're finishing our series in a few weeks on Hebrews 11, so we're coming to the end of this series. We'll be starting a new series in the summer on Sabbath. I'm really looking forward to it. But we've got about three weeks left in this series, and we've been calling it Enduring by Faith because the early church was trying to endure in this, this struggle with pragmatism. The early church was struggling with this idea of, does it really work? Does, does this faith in Jesus really work? Because people said it worked, and now life got hard. And it doesn't seem like this life with Jesus is better than the life we had without Jesus, so people are thinking about leaving Him. And so the, the letter of Hebrews was written to people who are considering this, wondering, is it worth it to follow Jesus? Does it really work? And, and he gets to chapter 11, and he's laying out the lives of Old Testament people who have endured through hard times. And now we come to Gideon. And last week we looked at Gideon, and uh, the beginning of Gideon's story, and just the context of what's going on. And we saw there's this refrain in the book of Judges, right? The refrain is, there was no king, and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone grabbed a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, and they threw it all together, and it didn't work. They put it together, and it turned into a disaster. Israel was going through this cycle of sin and repentance, and sin and repentance, and sin and repentance, and in some ways it was getting worse. And so then we come to Gideon's story, and God shows up, and this week I want to look further into Gideon's story and look at how repentance actually happens. Because last week we talked about what repentance is, comparing it to regret. Now I want to talk about how does it actually happen? What do we repent of? Okay? And so that's what we're going to look at today. And what's actually fascinating is it begins with God revealing Himself. It begins with God showing Himself for who He really is. And so if you're taking notes today, the first point is the descent. The descent. Look at verse 19 with me. The story goes on like this. It says, So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat, and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him, that's the angel, under the terebinth, and presented them. Now, we got to have some context here, because this is a strange scene. you got to understand kind of what's going on, but, but uh, Israel is struggling with oppression. They're in that cycle again that we talked about last week, where they sinned against God, and then God sends judgment on them, and life has gotten hard. They're still in the middle of that, and while they're in the middle of that, Gideon is despairing. 
I mean, he is, he's exhausted, he's frustrated, he's full of fear, he's hiding out from the Midianites. And so when God comes to him in this angel of the Lord, that's how he finds Gideon. He finds Gideon not full of faith, not full of strength, but full of weakness and doubt. And you remember what he says to him? He pronounces over him the, this, this blessing. He, he pronounces over him that I will be with you in your weakness. The Lord is with you, Gideon. Now, Gideon, you know, he, he likes that. He likes the sound of God being with me, but he looks around and he's like, I, I don't know if you're, you're crazy or what, but this is what's going on in my life. Do you see how terrible it is? How could God be with me? And so Gideon is full of doubt even after the pronouncement, and this is where we pick up the story. What does he do? He asks God for a sign. Now, this might be Gideon's most famous uh, aspect of his life, that he's, he's known for asking for signs. This is the first of three signs. He's going to ask here, and then he's going to ask later for a second sign, and then a third sign, and those are the fleeces, the famous fleeces that Gideon throws out to test God. Well, here, the first sign that Gideon asks for is a meal. And so he goes back to his house, and, and he's, uh, he's preparing this meal, but before we get into the meal with this angel, we have to ask, who is this angel? Because it's a crucial part of the sign, right? Who is this mysterious angel of the Lord figure? If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, he shows up often throughout the Old Testament. And when he shows up, it's kind of confusing because he's very human-like. In fact, even here with Gideon, uh, you, you see Gideon very confused by even him being a divine figure. He, he sees him and, and he's surprised by, by the revelation of who he is by the end of the story. So he doesn't even see it at first. He, he sees this person who's very human-like and then he begins to speak for the Lord, but then he speaks as the Lord. So which is it? Is the angel speaking for him as if he's sent by God or, or is he God himself? And if he's God himself, how can God be in heaven and then also send a messenger, which is what angel means? How can he be in both places at the same time? What what is going on with this strange figure? Well, it's one of the mysteries of the Old Testament that becomes becomes, uh, obvious later on in the New Testament as, as the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament. And we see here hints of the Trinitarian nature of God. In other words, without getting too far into this, we we see God being one God but three persons, even in the Old Testament, hints at that reality in the angel of the Lord. We see that He can be God and be, uh, be up in heaven as God and down on earth as God because there's two persons. You're seeing this this strange reality, this hint of the Trinity right here. And in fact, most biblical scholars throughout history believe the angel of the Lord is actually a pre-incarnate Christ. And so Gideon is preparing a meal for Jesus. He's preparing a meal for Jesus. He goes into his house. He he gets together this this young goat and these unleavened cakes, and and he gets it all prepared. He brings it out into a basket and and a pot. And he sits down under this oak tree with the angel and they begin to eat. And the angel tells him this strange thing to do. He says, I want you to put all the food on the rock. And then I want you to pour all the the broth from the meat over the meal. I mean, Gideon just spent all afternoon creating this meal. And I want you to dump all the broth all over all the meal. And Gideon does it. And then he says, now back up 
and he reaches out his staff. The angel reaches out his staff. He touches the food and it immediately catches on fire. And then it's consumed instantly. And then the angel just disappears like that. I mean, it's the strangest scene. You're, you're watching this and Gideon is like, what in the world just happened? But then Gideon realizes because it's so strange and because it's something only God could do, he must have actually been eating with the angel of the Lord. And, so, and that's what I'm saying. He, he didn't even recognize it until this moment that it was God. That the guest he was eating with was not just some ordinary person who was on a mission from God, but it was God himself. He says, I've come face to face with the living God, and somehow God has provided peace. Somehow that he, he, he was overwhelmed with fear because he was thinking, if I've come face to face with God, then I'm going to die. And the angel says, no, 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 fear not. There's peace. There's peace. And then this is where I want to focus. I'm just catching you up now. This is where I want to focus. I want to focus on his response. Because the way Gideon responds to this strange, mysterious encounter with God is fascinating. In verse 24, look at what he says. It says, Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. The Lord is peace, right? The Lord has pronounced peace over Gideon. But now Gideon responds by naming the altar that he creates to worship God, the Lord is peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It, it means more than just the, the absence of, of conflict. It means the presence of wholeness. It's, it's this sense that you don't lack anything. You, you have all that you need. Everything is the way that it's supposed to be. That's what it means to be in shalom. And so he says, this is not just something God does. This is not just how God acts. But this is who he is. The Lord is shalom. The Lord in his character, in his identity, in his heart, this is who he is. He is the very presence of wholeness. That's his nature. And so God reveals himself right here, right here to Gideon. When Gideon comes face to face, he reveals himself as the God who is everything that Gideon needs. Everything that we need. Right? Theologians call it uh, God's omni-attributes. This is what we've called it for centuries now, His, his omni-attributes. Omni is the prefix meaning all. Right? It, it means that He has all. He, he is sufficient. He, he has everything that He needs. And so there's three omni-attributes. I want to take a moment to talk about this for a second. First, God is omnipotent. He is omnipotent or He is all-powerful. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. Right? There is nothing outside of his control. There is nothing outside or beyond his capacity. He is limitless in his strength. He is tireless in his love. He is inexhaustible in his grace. His, his power is applied to every last detail of your life. Every last detail. As Jesus says, no sparrow falls without the hand of your Father. He's powerful. He's powerful enough for your biggest failures, your smallest struggles. He's powerful enough to fight your battles, to defeat your enemies, to overcome your shame. He is all-powerful. He's enough. But the second one is like it. The second one is that God is omniscient. It means He's all-knowing. right? So if He's all-powerful, that, that means He's great. But being omniscient and all-knowing means that He is wise. 
He is wise in His power. One person said it this way. He said He's not blind in His power. Meaning He knows all things. All of His actions are done knowing all things at all times in all ways because He is all-knowing. Psalm 147 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Another way to say it is that His power has purpose. It has purpose. right? He's working out His plan perfectly in your life. Every sorrow, every tragedy, every victory, every celebration, everything that was unexpected, everything you had hoped for, everything you despair, all of it was worked out in His perfect plan according to His knowledge, according to His wisdom, because He knows it all. And He doesn't just know the big things. He doesn't just know the small things. He knows the very personal things. He knows what you've been praying for and nobody knows about. He knows what you struggle to confess because you're afraid. He knows where where you're afraid to to share what's really going on in your life. He he knows. And He knows in not such a way that, that He knows so that He can bring condemnation, but He knows so that He can bring comfort because He knows all things. He knows where you've been. He knows where you are. He knows where you're going. He knows it all. He's enough. He's enough. And then there's this third one. He's not just all-powerful. He's not, he's not just all-knowing, but He's omnipresent. He's all-present. He, he's everywhere at all times. To say that God is present really here with us is to emphasize that He's never absent. Right? You can run from Him, but there He is. You can deny Him, but there He is. You can sin against Him, But there He is. You can't get away from Him because He is present. That means that all that He is, is present with you at all times. His truth is with you at all times. His love is with you at all times. His grace is with you at all times. His wisdom is with you at all times. His righteousness is with you at all times. And so you see how these three things work together? That God is all-powerful, He's all-knowing, He's all-present, He is enough. And this is the God that Gideon comes up to. Gideon sees face-to-face, and he realizes in this moment that the Lord is shalom. The Lord lacks nothing. If, if He is this kind of God, if He is this kind of God, I, I lack nothing. He doesn't just pronounce peace over me, He comes to be peace with me. He is wholeness in the flesh with me. And this kind of God who's enough, this kind of God who who calls us to Himself to see Him face to face in such a way, if He lacks nothing, if this really is who He is, then He calls us to trust uh, trust nothing else, to forsake all else. And this is where Gideon goes next. This is the second point, the destruction. Look at verse 25. He says, that night, that very night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. Now, after Gideon is... uh, you know, he sees this vision of the Lord. He sees that God is, is shalom. He's, he's wholeness. He lacks nothing. He's sufficient. He's enough. He sees this kind of God. 
God then turns them around and he says, now go tear down the altars of, of the idols. And it's the idols of their Canaanite uh, neighbors. It's, it's the idols that are surrounding them in, in the culture that they're in uh, as they've come into the promised land. And the two main idols that are happening in Israel at the time are Baal and Asherah. Now Baal is, if you know the Old Testament, he's, he's got various roles and, and he was a, uh, an idol that Israel struggled with over and over and over. But Baal, his primary role was the god of the rain. And so you think about their economy. Baal is the god who, who would pour out his rain and make their crops grow. And when Baal was happy, business was happy. I mean, Baal was the god of the economy. If Baal was angry, that means we weren't eating and we weren't making money. And so they would often sacrifice to Baal to bring the rain, is, is what they were thinking, so that they could make the money they need and eat the food that they need. And so Baal was this god of commerce, of money. And then you have Asherah, who was actually in their, in their uh, idol's uh, kind of story. They, they have Asherah as the mother of Baal. And she was the god of fertility and sex and pleasure. And so here you have Israel worshiping money and sex. Sound familiar? These are the idols that, that, that Gideon is sent to go tear down. But here's the really interesting part. He's sent to his own father's house. He says, go to Joash's house. That's his dad. Go to Joash's house where you will find the altar to Baal. Right? Joash was a good Jewish man who raised up his kids to, to serve Yahweh and to know about Yahweh and to love Yahweh. But on the side, he had these other gods of the culture. It, it, was, a, it was a kind of a safety net. It was a way that, that they would use these idols in Israel's uh, interactions that they wouldn't necessarily trade worshiping Yahweh for idols. They would combine worshiping Yahweh with idols. Right? In other words, they, they, they worship the true God formally, but functionally, they worship the gods of commerce and beauty and sex and pleasure and status. There, there was this competition, right? Idolatry wasn't an exchange. It was really just an addition. It was God plus. It was Jesus Plus, and, and this is precisely what Gideon is sent to tear down. God is saying, if I am sufficient, if I am shalom itself, if I am wholeness, lacking nothing, then there's no need for your idols. Go tear them down. See, idols are, are inclusive, but God is exclusive. Idols are fine with, you can have as many as you want as long as you serve me too. But God says, you can have one and one only. There was a young man who came to Jesus um, in, in the Gospels, young, wealthy man. They, they often call him now the rich young ruler. Uh, he came to Jesus and he had it all, right? He had money, he had status, influence. He, he was the guy that everyone in the community looked to and they said, I want to be like this guy because clearly God has blessed him. He, he is wealthy and powerful and, and everyone likes him. And so he comes to Jesus and he's got a legitimate question, a good question, an honest question. He says, what must I do to be saved? Even before that, he said, good teacher. He calls Jesus good teacher. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus corrects him before he gets into his answer. He says, who are you calling good? 
Yeah, he, he's, saying, he's saying you and I have different definitions of good. If you're saying I'm, I'm just a little bit better than everybody else, then that's not what I'm talking about. Good means God's goodness. And then he gets into his answer and he says this. He says, you know the answer. You, you know the commandments. And he starts to rattle off a couple of the commandments. And, and the guy says, yeah, 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 I've kept all those my whole life. I, I've done all those. What, what else do I need to do? What else do I need to do? And Jesus says this. He says, okay, you, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. And then come follow me. And the Bible says he was full of sadness and sorrow. And then he walked away. And there's no account of Jesus chasing him down and saying, hey, hey, I didn't mean that. I was just trying to test you, you know, or hey, we really need you for the building campaign. If you could just at least give some gifts and you could maybe work something out. Jesus just lets him go. And it's not that Jesus was saying that that's what everybody has to do. He just, he could perceive what this man really worshipped. He Formally worshipped God, but functionally, he had other gods. He had gods of money and status and wealth and approval, right? It was, it was God plus these things, and Jesus was saying, no, it must be God plus nothing. Plus nothing. Jesus taught the same principle in Matthew 6. He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot serve God and money. And the word money there is translated from the Greek meaning mammon, which was literally a god of money. He's saying you can't serve God and the idol of money. Right? He's saying this, the math of idolatry is addition. It's addition. You're, you're not necessarily subtracting God. You're just adding to God. You're adding to Him. It's, it's God plus anything. It's God plus money. It's God plus sex. It's God plus uh, getting married. It's God plus education. It's God plus a career. It's God plus politics. It's God plus someone's approval. It's whatever the plus is. Whatever the plus is, Jesus calls it another master. Because Jesus knew this is how it works. It's just like slavery. They, they, they will draw you in. They will tell you it will meet your need. And then next thing you know, you're enslaved. He says, you, you can't have that. You can't have one master and another master. You have to choose. He's saying you have to choose. There can't be both. You can't add a little bit of this and add a little bit of that and add a little bit of this and mix it together and hopefully it will work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's a trap. And so how can you tell? How can you tell that something has become an idol in your life when God is not enough? That's the simple answer. When God is not shalom, when He is lacking in something, Right? It, idolatry is really just our way of, um, of trying to grasp God's godness, if you will. It's, it's us wanting to be the omni. It's us wanting to, to do and be the things that only God can do and be. 
And so because He is perceived by us as lacking in something in His his own divinity, we will grasp at it and we will try to find something else to meet that need because He doesn't meet it. And we do it in three ways that that really, uh, just for today, they they correspond with the the, uh, three attributes of God that we talked about. And the first one is power. It's power. God is... Is uh, he's all-powerful, but if we perceive him to not be all-powerful, then we will start to grasp at power for ourselves. We, we will grasp at, at influence and status and, and the, the approval of other people, hoping that, that they can see us as something that, that's valuable and has, has uh, you know, status in their life and, and a voice in their life. And so we elevate power to this place that we're willing to do whatever it takes to get control of the situation. Because what's really important to us is not that God is all-powerful, but that we have a sense of power. The next one is is, uh, approval, right? God being all-knowing isn't enough, and so we grasp at knowing everything about everyone and what they think about us. It's not enough that God knows who we are. It's not enough that God knows what's happened. It's not enough that God is with us even though He knows the depths of our brokenness. We need to make sure everyone else approves of us. And so we got to know. we got to know. we got to be in the know. The gossip at the job, the, the, you know, the latest story that someone has about us, or we got to make sure that we control the narrative in our relationships and how people relate to us. It's this constant desire for approval, and it crushes us. Because God's knowing about us isn't enough. It's not enough. And the last one is like it. It's comfort. Right? God being all present in our life isn't enough, and so we grasp the comforting presence of so many other things. Anything, really. I mean, it might be the presence of a person, it might be the presence of a substance, it might be the presence of, uh, uh, of being, you know, binging on Netflix, overworking, over-exercising, overeating, over anything. We, we give ourselves over to something that by its very presence will give us some kind of comfort, because God's presence isn't enough. You see that? You see how idolatry is always the same problem. It's, it's seeing God as less than he really is. And so when we see God as lacking, we're going to go looking for things in other places. And so God might be our formal God, but we have all these other functional gods, all these other things that we've, we've erected to, to worship these altars of whatever it might be. And God is saying, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. And what does that look like? How does that happen? See, idol- or idols can't just be removed. They have to be replaced. What you see in Gideon's story is he doesn't just tear down the altar to the idol. He replaces it with a new altar. And this is the third point, the defense. Look at verse 28. It says, When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the ashtra beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Right? Nothing like this has ever happened. They, they've never woken up in the morning. They're sipping their coffee. They're walking out the front door of their little tent or wherever they're at. And everything is destroyed. Altars are torn down. Things are on fire. They're panicking. Who did this? What's going on? They're filled with fury. 
I mean, you want to know what someone's idols are. You want to know what your own idols are. Ask yourself where you get angry when you lose something. When something is taken away or somebody does something to something that you value, watch your response. I mean, they're filled with so much anger. They say, we're going to kill Gideon. And so they call Joash, bring your son out. We're going to kill him. And then Gideon's father, Joash, comes to his defense in verse 31. Look at what he says, and we'll close in a second. Will you contend? This is what he says to the people. Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, if he's a god, let him contend for himself. Because his altar has been broken down. I mean, you can almost see the smirk on the face of the person who wrote the book of Judges as he's writing down Joash's words and just hearing the logic coming out of Joash. This is a former idolater himself. They went to his house to tear down the altar. He was caught up in the slavery. He was caught up in the the ambition towards worshiping these idols. He himself knew what it was, but he saw in his son Gideon's worship of the true God. He saw something different. He saw that this God must be the true God. If Gideon is willing to take away all these things and and, and worship Yahweh like he's called us to worship him, he must be true. And so he comes to his defense with this logic. If he's God, let him fight for himself. If he's God, he should be sufficient. He should be enough. He should have all the power he needs. He should have all the knowledge he needs. He should have all the presence he needs. He should have everything if he is the real God. But he's not. And so he never came to the defense of his altar because only God can do that. See, when Jesus was hanging on that cross, there were similar cries from the crowd. They crucified him for claiming he was God. They were angry. They were upset because Jesus was a threat to their idols. Jesus was a threat because He came and He exposed the evil of our hearts. He came and He exposed what was really the functional God of our life. And so they said, we can't have this. They send Him to the cross. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, what are they crying out? They cry this. They say, if He is the Son of God, let Him save Himself. Sound familiar? If he's the Son of God, let him save himself. Let him show that he's all-powerful. Let him show that he's all-knowing and he can outsmart this situation. Let him show that he's all-present and he can comfort himself. And so what does Jesus do? I mean, they're calling for him to defend his divinity. What does he do? He endures. He stays. See, any idol would save itself if it could. Any false god would get down and defend itself if it could. But Jesus, the true God, who could? The true God, wrapped in true humanity, chose not to save himself, but to save his enemies. He chose not to defend himself, but to defend his adversaries. See, Jesus' staying power on the cross is the evidence of his saving power. It's the evidence that it's the ultimate show of his divinity that he chose not in the defense of himself, but in the death of himself to show I'm the true God. He chose in his own death, in his own endurance in the cross to say this is what God does. God dies for his enemies. See, God crushes 
idols by being crushed himself. Isaiah 53, 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, no idol loves you like Jesus loves you. Because no idol has taken your place. No idol has exchanged itself for you and died in your place. No idol has lived in righteousness for you. No idol has been mocked and shamed for you. No idol has shed its blood for you. No idol has satisfied God's wrath for you. No idol has been raised to newness of life for you. No idol is coming again for you. No idol, but Jesus only. Jesus only. See, John Stott, he said it this way. He said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. You catch that? The the, the way the gospel works is that we have to get rid of our idols, but we can't do it. And the only way that we can do it is if God steps in and he says, I'll take your place. I'll take your place and I'll endure to the end, replacing your sin with my body so that I can take upon myself all the judgment, all the wrath, all the guilt, all the shame for you, so that your idols can be replaced with me. So that they can be replaced with the true God. With a God who loves you. A God who cares for you. A God who dies for you. A God who is real. Who doesn't come to the defense of himself, but he comes to your defense against every sin and every misery. A God who gives himself. A God who gives himself. This is the God that that we worship. This is the God that Jesus is calling you to himself. This is the God that Gideon came face to face and he said, I have seen God and I know he is the Lord is shalom. He is wholeness. He is not lacking in anything. He has all that you need. And so he says, come to me. All who are weary of worshiping idols. Come to me all who are tired and exhausted by trying to make your own meal and make it work. Come feed upon me and be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Christ that you chose, you chose to send your son Jesus to die upon a cross and be crushed in our place. Because you knew that even Gideon's task of going to crush the idols, moments later the idols would be rebuilt because in ourself we don't have the ability to stop we don't have the ability to turn our hearts and our worship towards you and you alone we're just like the rich young ruler who would come face to face with this choice and we would turn away time and time again knowing that this god this functional idol in our life is too big for us and so god we beg we beg that you would do what we can't do Because you took our place on the cross, you give us the power by your Spirit to do the impossible, to lay down our lives and give them to you by faith. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be glorified and honored as we give you our whole hearts today once more. In Jesus' name, amen.